the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It is a delight to have Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman in studio with us. Lewis Holman is the Managing Director of Insight Analytics, LLC. Hugh Holman is an attorney in town, former mayor of Tempe, and many other things. We did heavy show prep. Uh, We were talking about the first Thanksgiving menu and things that um, we probably wouldn't eat today, like swan or flint corn pigeon. Um, but the debate on this show has always been about cranberry sauce, and I'm with uh, Marty Crane from Frasier. Uh, David, would you give us the Marty Crane monologue, please? Wait, wait, wait. What are you doing? I'm mushing the potatoes. By hand, you're supposed to whip potatoes. That way, every bite tastes the same. Well, isn't that a bit bland? Hello. Welcome to potatoes. (laughs) Could you just once cook a traditional Thanksgiving meal? I mean... Look at this cranberry sauce. It's supposed to keep the shape of the can. Quiver a little bit. Look at all these little chunks in there. Those are cranberries. Dad, here you are. Uh, One frozen pumpkin pie Uh, unrequested. Honestly, wouldn't you rather I just bake a pie from scratch? Is it that you can't learn or you won't learn? (laughs) You can't learn or you won't learn. Hugh Holman, Lewis Holman, what's on your minds today, collectively or individually? First, I must start with the fact that my family's tradition was that my grandmother would always volunteer to my mother that she would bring the cranberry sauce. And indeed it was the cranberry sauce in a can and the lid would get uh, cut off with the the opener and that sound of... Right. As it releases from the can and stands in the dish and just slightly... And quivers a little. Quivers a little. That was good onomatopoeia on your part. Yes, thank you. Every time I see you. There it is. Okay, David, now you've got another for the collection. (laughs) Uh, So let's now be serious about this because it is uh, the eve, uh, nearly the eve of the eve of Thanksgiving. And I want to give great thanks to another smashing effort by our host, Seth Liebson, in his monologue to talk about the fact that we have tortured our children and created sufficient fears in their heads through how they've been uh, exposed to life, that they are terrified that the earth is uh, coming to an end quickly, that COVID uh, was sufficient to shut us down, and yet we are not focusing on the kinds of things that we all should be terrorized by, but instead are popular. And you did in the monologue, I have to correct you, say our our uh, health institutions, our, our various, uh, what was the exact phrasing here, the public health authorities. Now, to be fair, so far we've only really tracked it in two of our most important largest states, New York and California. But there are others who are on this bandwagon saying, start small, use with friends, use, you know, use carefully. And our mission and vision uh, is now in the current environment to recommend that people not even start. Because if you can get kids to get to their 18th or 19th birthday without ever starting, they have a shot at never becoming addicted to dangerous drugs. All of that said, the monologue sets this 
stage for Lewis and I to, believe it or not, not focus on domestic issues, which one might believe that monologue is all about, of that you know, you've got global warming issues here, you've got uh, COVID stuff, how the Gen Z and Gen X and all the other folks have been taught to worry about uh, Greta Th- uh, Thunberg's uh, global warming initiative as a 15-year-old who has enlightened the entire world from Sweden about uh, what global warming means and what we have to do about it, and uh, was by Time magazine noted as the 2019 person of the year. And you're distressed about that, Seth. I know this. But I have to remind you that Time has had some really great insights into some of the best human beings it should be designated as people of the year. Uh, there was, of course, Adolf Hitler in 1938, a favorite. Uh, Joseph Stalin. Not favorite. <laughs> uh, Joseph Stalin got it both in 1939 and 1942. And don't forget Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini. Who got it in 1979? So she's in great company with some of the finest human beings that we've ever seen exist, including the dictator of Iran or that turned a country uh, that was at the height of uh, intellectual prowess and development and turned it back uh, by a thousand years and destroyed much of its thinking. And Lewis likes to talk about Baghdad as having been the font of, of uh, much of Western knowledge. That said, those fears in some ways, need to be addressed with the adults in the room. And I'm going to bring it back to the fentanyl point, and then I'm going to let Lewis launch. And it is this. Fentanyl is a real crisis in our community. But it's not just fentanyl. As you know, I get on this soapbox. Every six or eight months, we get a new drug. It sounds like Huey Lewis in the news. I want a new drug, and we introduce it to our communities. And what I find most shocking in the international environment and most ridiculous was this. The president of the United States came out and crowed about his great successes with China because one of his most important things that he accomplished was trading a variety of things that China wanted in exchange for China agreeing to try to limit the precursors that make fentanyl. And what I find so ridiculous about that is, as a negotiator, that should have been before we even start a conversation. There is no excuse China for allowing at all anybody to manufacture this stuff and send it to the United States to poison our children. We don't even get to start the conversation until that stops. You don't get trade deals from us and opportunities to get military assistance just to give up something that you should never be doing in the first instance. Now I get to turn it over to Lou, who might want to figure out how to even start with that pile uh, that I've thrown on. Well, the I might I'm, I might start as a as a as a linchpin to Lou, Lewis here by saying, and you know damned well that if China wanted to put a stop to it, it could. Darned well, and yes, yeah. and the whole reason that that engagement occurs is for the kind of geopolitical stuff that Lewis will talk about. Well, I, I'm just reminiscing a little bit on uh, one of my favorite executive branch negotiators that that the U.S. has ever had, and and you'll actually love this, Dad, because it is in fact Ronald Reagan, your favorite. Um, just thinking, uh, at, you know, at the tail end of Operation uh, Praying Mantis, in which the U.S. destroyed about half of Iran's navy at the end of the 1980s, um, there was an incident towards the the end of that operation in which the Iranians fired an anti-ship missile. I can't remember the exact type at uh, U.S. forces. The, the, the missile had missed, but this particular type of missile 
was one that uh, Reagan was very upset that the Iranians had in the first place and had pre- previously said that the use of such weapons would, would necessitate U.S. response in an invasion. And so effectively the missile is fired and, and Reagan is calling the Iranians. Is all right, that was an accident. No one's ever going to talk about that again because if it ever does come out that that actually happened, then we're going to have to turn around and go back there. Mm. Reagan was a master at using the economy of force to set the table and rather than in this case, like you said, reach the fentanyl uh, 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 piece as a concession for Reagan, that would have been table setting. That would have been a we're not even sitting down to have a negotiation because you're doing things that are not the the, the sign of a negotiating force. They're the signs of an adversary who's looking to double dip and run the table around us. Reagan wouldn't have tolerated that kind of of nonsense and the use of that fake ammo from the Chinese at the negotiating table. It is the Russians creating false flag kinds of operations to justify their invading Ukraine. They were doing the same things and still talk about it. Their talking heads talk about Kazakhstan being a fake nation. They, over the last 300 years, salted the northern part of Kazakhstan with Russians. They took their poorest folks and dumped them into Kazakhstan because they didn't know what else to do with them and then allowed them to take land from the Kazakhs. So I, I do want to get, get back into, into the results of this summit, though, with Biden and Xi Jinping. It's fascinating to me to watch because what we've been seeing for the last several years out of China was the growing sort of wolf warrior diplomacy, you know, saber rattling, hyper nationalistic um, and, and almost to a deluded degree obsessed with China, with, with this sort of new Chinese character of, of strength and technological superiority and the idea that China can actually be this sort of expeditionary power. Xi's response has walked a lot of that back, which is fascinating to see and gives me a lot of hope for the future that cooler heads may, in fact, prevail. Part of the issue that we've been seeing out of China is that she has so uh, totally killed the messenger and purged the administration of any potential challengers that there isn't really anyone left in the Chinese system that is capable of functional decision making and not only is anyone without, without the capacity to do that analysis and come up with good ideas, but then on the execution side, uh, she, the buck really does stop with she. And no matter how smart you are, you cannot have one man doing the cognitive work of leading and deciding all of the policy for a society of 1.3, 1.4 billion people. And only one thing to add, Lewis keeps referring to Xi Jinping as she. Maybe it's he. I, have we actually adjusted the pronouns? <laughs> Let's go out with the man who got an 800 on his math SAT, Mr. Huey Lewis. You have to kind of visualize Al Hurt doing that. You can't tell if the fingers are moving faster than the tongue, you know? That double and triple tongue, it's really masterful. You know this because Lewis's grandfather was a trumpet player, a professional I, trumpet player. I do, as was his father, not a professional and barely could hold a candle. But, uh, <laughs> yes, there is something about uh, and uh, continuous breathing, which I could never master either. Circular. Exactly. Circular breathing, yeah. that's. It's not that hard. It's just filling. It's not, it's not what it sounds like. It's Says just, a master who can just, do no, it. No, it's just filling your cheeks with air so that, anyway. Lewis Hallman, you were talking about Xi Jinping's. Um, what would you call it? Total control. There's no one there to challenge him anymore. Right? Cult of personality yeah. might be a good way to put yeah. it. Um, you know, you, you, you may recall, for instance, um, it worked out well for Stalin. Right. Sure. Uh, you, you, you may recall uh, a, 
a couple of years ago, there were rolling blackouts going all throughout China. There's evidence that, that she didn't actually hear about those until about um, eight months after they started. Uh, we also have the issue, if you'll recall, the debacle, I think, last year with the Chinese spy balloon mm-hmm. uh, that went over the U.S. That uh, seems to have emerged from sort of rogue elements is perhaps not the best way to put this, but... Uh, 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 independently acting, ele- <clears throat> excuse me, independently acting elements within the the Chinese military and intelligence apparatus, trying to embody the sort of wolf warrior diplomacy that they that she had been encouraging, and that, that's sort of the, the weird thing when you get these kinds of absurdly nationalistic cult of personality type politics, is that now many of the the apparatus uh, apparatus in uh, in the Chinese system are they're at this point operating on what they think she wants to see, right? And so there isn't really— This happens, I'm told, the same in Iran, I'm told. Right, right, right. yeah, exactly. And Russia. Russia. Mm -hmm. And so uh, these are— This is the mark of a totalitarian— These are important examples that you end up with somebody so powerful but so now disconnected that they have a hard time having gotten all the levers of— power and control, a hard time operating them all effectively, and then people seem to be running off doing their own thing in hopes that they're doing the thing that will it's a It's a creation of so favor. many Frankensteins, and, right, and that the, you lose control. The other thing as well is that, that this is also a system in which corruption is actually encouraged, uh-huh. despite all of the anti-corruption measures that we hear talk about here in the West. The, the reason that, that corruption is encouraged in this kind of autocratic system is that if everyone is guilty of corruption, it gives the central authority the ability to pull anyone they want out of line for any reason and then punish them, right? It's this sort of universal control measure that goes through where law then becomes this very arbitrary exercise. Um, but bringing it back, looking at the, the strategic picture for China, why she has sort of reversed and, and done this, there's a few arenas I, th- I think that are really worth talking about. First is the technology piece on the the, the chip end. Um, so currently in the West, we are pushing for three nanometer chips. Uh, these are the scale at which uh, uh, the, the, the chips are assembled and are, are able to operate it. Obviously, these smaller scale chips, the more processing power you can pack into a limited area. The Chinese at this point are domestically able to make, I think, 12 nanometer chips, something like that, which would put them at about 10 years behind the U.S. There are significant technological gaps between the Chinese and and U.S. chip production, and broaching those is a really, really core part of Chinese national security priorities. The the reason that this is important, the really, really high-end chips, uh, the really, really small ones, those are what are used in artificial intelligence, AI, you know, high-end computers, smartphones, things like that. Then you also have sort of midline chips, a slightly larger. You see those. Those are the precision chips that go into things like missile warheads or that go into uh, cars that, that, you know, get them to navigate properly or function correctly. And so China really has a lot of ability to do very, very low-end chips. Those are kind of the Internet of Things style chips. And... What we want to do, the, but inexpensively—that's that's a piece. Correct. Yes, and so we're you know we're, we're really trying to limit the ability of the Chinese to build an indigenous high-level chip production system because it will then keep them uh, uh, away from the capabilities that the U.S. has developed vis-a-vis precision weapons, vis-a-vis 
uh, uh, artificial intelligence. The other things that we want to concern ourselves with as well are are the Chinese propensity for an ever-increasing police state that is then driven with with artificial intelligence and these sorts of of technologies as well. So the more that that they are inhibited from developing that, the more they they are, uh, the, the less they are able to control and monopolize their own population. And that plays out in a scenario in which, as we discussed in our last meeting together, you have three sort of hot spots right now on the planet where you've got Russia having invaded Ukraine, uh, first in 14 with uh, with Barack Obama's failure to stop the uh, Crimea invasion, and then uh, Barack's understudy Joe Biden uh, failing to signal that we would actually protect Ukraine in a larger onslaught following what was the failed exit from Afghanistan that signaled to everybody that the U.S. is a bad friend and incompetent. Then you have Hamas murdering now approximately 1,200 Israelis who also happen to be Jewish, and you can look at it in both lenses. Either one is horrific. Uh, And then the third one is you've got China threatening Taiwan. With Xi Jinping coming here and uh, folks had hoped it would signal more of a hat in hand, which he did not do, but there were enough things that demonstrated what Lewis is talking about that they recognize that the saber-rattling not only affected the relationship with the U.S., which they are dependent on for economic growth and development, but other countries. So around the globe, this saber-rattling has had this impact. Kazakhstan, I to, there I am on the ground there watching the, the Kazakhs turn their back on the Chinese, their immediate neighbor, both because they had been invaded a thousand years ago by the same people, but also because the Chinese through their Belt and Road Initiative and other activities over the last decade were trying to get control of very strategically important minerals uh, and, and geopolitical positions across northern Africa and all those sorts of things. So now we've got those three hot spots that we all have to be worried about. And this context, we have Xi showing up for Joe Biden to get his promos for his campaign, and he gives away huge amounts of important U.S. strategic important initiatives in order to get stuff that he should have gotten, as Lewis said in the last segment, before the discussion even started. I almost, Go ahead. Well, so, so I just want to also um, talk about a few other pieces. I think we may need to extend this into the next section Let's as do that. Well. Let's Seth uh, pick up. Yeah, I'll just say I almost wonder if we're not giving Barack Obama enough credit, uh, the invasion of Crimea, to be sure— But also, I think the failure to stand up on the red lines in Syria, which he did then farm out to Russia to take over, uh, also empowering the Iranians and shutting down the revolution in Iran in his first year in office. He empowered, really, the Iranians and Russia to a degree that I don't think the book has been written on yet. And I think we're still suffering from those those, uh, appeasements uh, or farmings out, however you want to put it. I love appeasement. I think that's right. Appeasement is about... It's about as good as it gets. But <clears throat> crushing the dissident movement in Iran, too, and signaling all that, which we are now seeing uh, Joe Biden put a coda to, the three of us will be right back. So where did this – this was nowhere on the menu. No, why did – this is not – why? Why? This, is, this was just – Music that was at the ready. It's no, lovely. We've never put this in the bumper. It's not in the bumper. Right. Ladies Why and gentlemen, we... you're listening to how radio gets made. Why are we, we weren't doing... fast enough to get the ABBA. <laughs> we were we trying to get ABBA. Regular... 
and and do jukebox musicals uh, for the show. And now, of course, I'm Hugh Hallman sitting in for Seth Liebson on the Seth Liebson Show here at KKNT 960, The Patriot, uh, with my son, Lewis Hallman. Lewis Hallman is both my son and I am his father. In the same way that Abraham is uh, Isaac's father and Isaac is Abraham's son. Wow, you listen. I feel like there's a really implicit threat there, and I'm kind of <laughs> terrified. Yeah, now. he's worrying I, about the like... I'm carrying knives in my briefcase. Right. Yeah, I've just crossed my legs for, it, for it, a few it, reasons. It is Thanksgiving, after all. Somebody's got to be sacrificed. <laughs> Lewis. Um... <laughs> so we were talking about yes. China. We were talking about China. Yes. And I, I, we were specifically talking about the uh, the coffee, summit with with Biden and Xi Jinping uh, uh, the other week. Uh, I wanted to set the table a little bit also on what she is dealing with domestically in China right now uh, that that might sort of contextualize a little bit of of what is happening with them. So first, um, I'd like to start with the Chinese real estate sector. It is in meltdown. Uh, The Evergrande crisis began a couple of years ago where the company with the most amount of debt in the world, the Chinese real estate company, started to default on that debt. We then have seen this contagion spread to other major players in the Chinese uh, real estate sector as well. Uh, Keep in mind that China doesn't have a financial system like the U.S. It doesn't have the same kind of stock market that we do. Most Chinese wealth is in real estate for household wealth. Up to 70% of it, in fact, is. And so that is a much, much higher proportion than any asset class that we have in the United States. And so this sector then has now been dealing with 20 to 25% collapses in every market in China year to date so far, and this has no sign of abating right now. Uh, This is the result of decades and decades of systemic overbuilding and finance-driven, debt-driven growth where we have built sort of the the train station to nowhere, ad infinitum, all of the low-hanging fruit has happened, and now we are, are left with the most rash and wasteful investment projects. Next on the item list, though, is food. The Chinese actually uh, wa- do not grow all of their food internally with a population of 1.4 billion people. That was actually what originally motivated them to start the one-child policy under Mao Zedong, uh, in the in the 70s. Still at this point, it's not actually growing all of the food. It is the precursors, the industrial precursors, the fertilizer that then can be used to grow the food. 80% of that fertilizer is imported in China. It is a massive, shocking vulnerability that they have. Next piece, demography. The Chinese population peaked Uh, According to their data in 2018, although recent information uh, from some universities in China indicate that they may have uh, had their population peak around 2005, in fact, uh, the Chinese population is now declining. So there is no more demographic dividend to be had, and they will now be fighting uphill. So this Chinese growth story that we heard about, which was in fact the result of an enormous demographic dividend over the last two decades, has entirely played out. And we are now at a point, because their population is aging so rapidly, where the median Chinese person is older than the median American. And the cost of Chinese labor has increased 12-fold since 2000. So the workshop of the world is in the process of pricing itself out. So China is now at the point where it is a large, decaying, over-engineered economy that is in desperate need of pivot. Think 50 times Japan and the same consequence that 
Japan faced over the last three decades. Correct. Unable to build itself out and get its economy going as its its demographics collapse. Right. And and in order to rescue itself from this, we are seeing an increasingly nationalistic fever pitch is where you see the saber rattling on Taiwan. But now we have to ask ourselves, as sober, fair-minded people, we saw what a non-Western military was able to do in these recent times where precision munitions and, and, and the new technologies of war are increasingly playing a role. I think that China is going to have a harder time than Russia did because Taiwan is across a strait. Well, they can't just drive tanks to Kiev. Might, might I ask you this on the other side of the break, though? The condition of the people on the ground. I have serious, deep-thinking conservative friends who, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to both of you when we come back, serious, deep-thinking conservative friends, some, who, some of whose names would be well-known to this audience, who say, maybe we need to stop talking about American exceptionalism when you look at the condition of Americans. Some of the stuff I was talking about, the obesity, the mental illness, the drug addlement, and what that's like. What's the condition of the Chinese people on those fronts? Maybe we can talk about the cultural condition when we come back. Yes? Love to. Would that be okay? I'm Seth Liebson, Lewis Hallman, and Hugh Hallman are my guests, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman and Hugh Hallman are my guests. Uh, I was going to say don't need introductions, but that's not fair to them. Lewis Hallman is the Managing Director of Insight Analytics, I-N-C-I-T-E Analytics, LLC. Hugh Hallman, many of you know, is the former mayor of Tempe, an attorney in town and educator. The China uh, anthropological or cultural condition uh, and other countries that we are facing up against versus our own, when you think about the declining stature and status of American health, whether it's the obesity crisis, whether it's the mental health crisis, whether it's the drug, uh, the drug, uh, the drug abuse crisis, uh, any number of things, and one might, one might, you know, even talk about its connection not only to economic abilities and longevity, but one might talk about it in the context of military recruitment, which is down at record levels because of the condition of our 17 and 18 year olds. I throw it to you, Lewis, and then Hugh. Sure. So, a couple of things I would note about uh, first of all, U.S. domestic military recruitment. We are uh, moving from a world in which the millennials were our time, our prime recruitment demographic to a world where the Zoomers are our prime recruitment demographic for military affairs. And uh, I hate to break it to you, Seth, but the millennials were uh, born in the shadow of the baby boomers and are thus an enormous generation, yep. uh, whereas the Zoomers were born in the shadow of Gen X and are thus the smallest generation we have currently. Yep. And so uh, I'm unsurprised that U.S. recruiting is is slipping. Um that said, though, th- there were uh, a number of other pieces you, you'd brought up here. So looking at sort of the, uh, the larger sort of, sort of picture between our, 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 two so- our two societies, particularly as far as uh, you, you, you see social health, social That's health, all of these other pieces. Yeah. So if you, if you look at, at China, um, and I'm, I'm going to use China as the specific, but we could extend this to other places around the world. You know, there, there's a significantly higher incidence of smoking in China. You see massive air pollution uh, uh, causing all sorts of issues, lower life expectancy, um, lots of issues uh, from bad food food preparation and supply chain issues in that in that sector, uh, as well as increasing obesity. You know, there, there's this kind of fad from. Uh, 
I think, American politics about 15 years ago where the documentary Super Size Me comes out and we're all upset about yeah, fast food. Right, and we're, we're right. seeing this as kind of a uniquely American problem back in 2005. I actually don't think it's a uniquely American problem. I think it's a, I think it's a modern problem and that the U.S. just happened to be at that point on the forefront of rolling out fast food. But now we're in a world where you know, one of the fastest growing brands in sub-Saharan Africa is KFC. Which I think and is dominant in China, too. It is. It is, yeah, in fact, right. yes. And, I think and it makes it the second largest restaurant in the world because of its right, property yeah. in China. It's, it's huge in, yeah, in, in, right, in Japan right, as well. Right. Uh, but um, what we also see, though, is, you know, we're, we're now in a world where the Gulf states, I, I believe, have the most obese populations. But those are those – are, that is the case because – the Gulf societies, this would be Saudi Arabia, this would be the United Arab Emirates, because these societies actually are, are structured so that their indigenous populations, the native Saudi or the native Emirati population, they don't work. They collect generous welfare benefits from the state in the form of, of, of subsidies from the oil extraction that happens. And virtually all of the economic work of those countries is done by expats, by, by foreign workers, whether Westerners in sort of the high-tech oil extraction roles, or in the case of the UAE, you see a lot more Southeast Asian Indian uh, uh, laborers who are then actually building the utopia in the desert. So Lewis is actually giving the point that while the U.S. has lots of problems, and I agree with that, we don't want to sit here and cheer that we're in a good condition. China is facing many, many difficult challenges, and I'll make two quick points. One is, in speaking with folks who have just come from China in their 80s, who just emigrated because they have health conditions that allowed them to come out to get better health care here in the United States, imagine that condition, that yes, you're going to escape to the United States to get health care, and they have family members who are citizens here who were able to bring them here, that in discussing how COVID was handled, the answer was not only no vaccines, no medications, lockdowns, that was the source. And the fact is, lots and lots of old people allowed to die, in part solving some of the demographic. This is Stalinistic in its cold nature. Like starving people. Let's just let them, let's take them off of the list of people we've got to worry about. They've had their lives. And it's a very collectivist notion of what is correct. By the same token, and Lewis has his view of and I'm not not being pejorative here, his view of the condition of the Chinese military. On the U.S. side, we are perhaps worse off than we have ever been, uh, except in the run-up to World War II. And the reason it's so distinct and different, we had time before the U.S. entered World War II, before we had to get onto the continent to build ships and planes and other activities. It took us a couple of years we're not going to have that kind of time next time around. And now we have America's strategic posture, which is the final report of the Congressional Commission on the strategic posture of the United States military. This came out just a month and a half ago, and it is the final report effectively saying we don't have Ronald Reagan's 600 ship Navy. We have allowed all elements of our military to decline significantly. And our only saving grace is we still have a good number of these nuclear-powered submarines well-positioned, but we have a third as many as we ultimately will need to be prepared for that universe in which you have Iran, China, and Russia. These three powers that are poised and working together to undermine the Western 
control of the planet because not because we're making a hash of it and the quality of life and, and uh, uh, standard of living for our people, but because for China, as an example, they continue to hearken back a thousand years and we have all these people, we should be the most important country on the planet. They just don't happen to have a political structure that allows them to exploit and take advantage of all the resources they have in the same way Ch- uh, Russia has the same problem. And it was P.J. O'Rourke who wrote Eat the Rich and explained what you really need. If you want to look around the world and see who's successful, it takes some liberty, some resources, but people's ingenuity and freedom to execute and create wealth for not only themselves, but everyone else who benefits. And we are now going into a time period when the U.S. has no good military response to many of the threats that are around the world. We have a society that is looking inward, and as back to your monologue, creating crises by adults in the room who are adding to the crazy fervor over things that are much less important than what really we should be concerned about. And that is the ability of the United States to survive in an environment that is quite hostile. While we have China getting concessions from Joe Biden to not poison our children. That's nuts. Um, let, let's 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 wrap it up on the on the other side of this break with the question answering the question that I think a lot of you both of you bring up to me, which is in looking at our condition in the world based on what we see in the mirror when we look at ourselves seriously. Is it a question of other countries are about to follow in our steps? Lewis, it's hard to listen to your recitation of what's taking place in some of these other countries, particularly China, as they're going through what we have been going through. It just seems we got there a little bit faster, and if we just wait them out, they'll fail at a slower rate. And I, 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 I'm wondering if that's what we have to worry about or if whether there really is a differential of quality as well as the quantity of population within China. We'll, we'll close it out if that made sense when we come right back. In other words, uh, are, 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 are we going to succeed by low expectations of others? We'll be right back. Welcome back, and thanks for being with us, Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman, uh, particularly in studio. Lewis, so the, the question I listening to you recite the conditions on the grounds in some of our adversaries' countries, China, Russia, elsewhere. Um, I can't help but wonder if our plan for success, or at least plan for survival, is based on an expectation of low expectations in these other countries, an expectation of, 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 of failure in these other countries more than a success on our own. I, I love this notion, Seth. Uh, so there, there, is, uh, there are a lot of things that, that give me cause for, for concern about the future. Chief amongst them, and I think we should talk about this next time, mm-hmm. is the fact that the Congressional Budget Office has forecasted a 6.8% deficit every year for the next decade for the U.S., which means that our wealth, if, if we are going to be trending towards a 6.7% uh, uh, overage, inflation likely would trend there. And if you are getting inflation at about 7% per year, that means that all wealth is halved every 10 years effectively. Uh, so massively concerning. But to your question about, about um, you know, where are we relative to, the, to these other countries, um, right. we're playing this, this great game of modernization. And the U.S. in many ways, I think, started that game earlier, which you noted, which means that being at the forefront of that game 
our progress has been slower a lot of the time, although most more sustained and for for quite a longer time. Another thing I would I would mention is that we are still in the process, I think, of peopling our continent in that the U.S.'s density is about a quarter that of Europe on a population density basis. Um, and so there's still a lot of sort of low-hanging fruit expansioning, uh, expansionism, pulling up the best land, the most concentrated resources. That is an advantage that the U.S. has to a degree that I don't think any other society on Earth has. Uh, and so we, we all – Canada possibly, yeah, except they've got, you know, in more northerly, northerly geography and some other issues, lower population, that kind of thing. But then you see someone like China, and it, it's very easy to look at the headlines of 6 or 7 percent GDP growth and think that – you know, China is where it's going to be, that the 21st century has to be the, the century of China. But China started behind us in this modernization game. And they are, in fact, all they're doing is they are copying. They're using 1940s, 1950s, 1960s technology in the 1980s and 90s and 2000s and getting where we were decades ago. It is no surprise that that process is fast. It also lends itself well to to a number of uh, n- particularly Chinese strengths, copying. The Chinese are very, very good cult- technological assimilators, but they are not necessarily innovators. And we see this with the the constant deluge of intellectual property theft over the last 20 years. On the whole, the U.S. is at the forefront. We, we have the challenges of the first mover and of the innovator, but we still have the best geographic position, the best economic position, and the best militaristic position of any country in the world, by a fair margin. And the task is ours, I think, to navigate carefully and with stewardship the challenges ahead, but we need not live in fear. We instead should be grateful and thankful for the opportunities that we have and the resources and the blessings that we've received. Thank you all so much. God bless. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.